As Mark mentioned, we're going to go into the Psalms, so I just want to, those who are going to be with us through the summer, we're just going to be doing a summer of Psalms. Um, if you're just visiting, well, you just get to hear a, a lovely Psalm opened up to you. And the theme that we're going to look at as we go through the Psalms, um, it's going to be emphasizing on worship and worshiping in the Psalms. Um, and I think it's a lovely thing, like, you can almost feel like when you think of that, when Mark said the, the sermon series was a summer of psalms, I don't know, but for me, it just sort of suddenly I, I thought, you know, it's going to be lovely sunshine and you'll just be able to, you know, look, pull out your Bible on a lovely green hill as you overlook the Solent and the, be a slight breeze, not too much, but just enough to keep it cool. And you'll just be able to read the Psalms and feel the sunshine and the breeze and smell the flowers and it'll just be amazing. Doesn't that like the summer, summer in the Psalms? Oh. You almost could hear the angelic beings singing in the background as well, as there's a, there's a track that goes behind you of, of this music as well. Um, and then we had yesterday, and I was like, okay, it's probably not going to be quite like that. Couldn't really get out into the sunshine too much. But there is something that makes our heart kind of sing when we think of something like meditating or taking a time to dwell in the Psalms. Now, the Psalms have got a lot of different um, Psalms come out. There are some Psalms that you, you read to the end and you're like, that didn't seem like it even ended happy. Uh, he, he, just, he just had a tough time the whole way through and it ends and you're like, where's the second part? And there's other Psalms where it's just so full of praise and glorifying of God that you just like, you can't help but read it three or four times as you're just amazed by it. So the Psalms are full of all these different uh, genres and different parts of particularly David's life, but different people's lives. And as we unpack these different Psalms through the summer, I'm going to start off by encouraging you to do one thing, and that is don't go on holiday with the Psalms. Work at involving the psalm into every part of your day. So although we're in the, uh, the summer of psalms, this is not a holiday from the Word of God. In fact, I'm encouraging you to dig deeper into the Word of God than perhaps you ever have. So it's not a holiday time. It's a time to allow the Word of God to sink deep. Allow it to go deep. Um, I thought about how do we kick off a series like this and... The best place, I think, to start off when you're going to the Psalms is Psalm 1, because uh, it's the first one. So you go there and you get a gist of what the rest of this these collection of Psalms is going to be like. And I don't know if you're supposed to have a favorite psalm or verse or whatever. Um, I know you're not supposed to have a favorite child. I often say to my, my kids, like, Isabel's my favorite firstborn. Um, Isaac's my favorite firstborn son. And Jonathan's my favorite youngest. And when I look at the Psalms, I'm like, sometimes it's the same as the Psalms. I, I read Psalm 1 and I go, Psalm 1, that's definitely my favorite first Psalm. And I read Psalm 2 and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a good Psalm as well. That's probably my favorite Psalm 2. And as you read them through, you just have this, it builds and builds and builds. 
But I want to start in Psalms 1, in Psalm 1, because Psalm 1 is almost like the preface to all of the Psalms. It's kind of like the setup. When, it starts, when you start with Psalm 1, it's kind of saying, get this into your heart, because as you go through the rest, you're going to be referring back to this time and time again. It's the setup for the rest of the Psalms. So let's read through it together. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The the psalm starts off with what it is trying to get us to all understand, is this first word it starts off with, blessed. Blessed. God wants us to understand that the position we start with him, when we encounter him, is one of being blessed. Our starting point, whenever we're reading the Psalms, whenever we're encountering God, whenever we're seeking after God, our first point of call, our first thing we receive from Him is blessings. Blessed, blessed is the man. And as we read through this Psalm, we seem to get two categories being defined by the psalmist in this. And it's important because it helps us understand the rest of psalms. But we get two categories that are are defined in this psalm. And the two categories are this. The categories of human beings. Categories that are humans that are righteous and humans that are wicked. And the psalmist is is showing us that all through the rest of the psalms, we're going to see two categories coming up time and time again, righteous and wicked. And in here, it's it's actually helping us to understand. And when we first read this, it sounds like it starts off negative. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But it's actually quite helpful to define it in the negative. Because if we define it in the positive, you could sometimes walk in righteousness and then sometimes you go off the path a bit. But by defining it in the negative, you actually give it a solid absolute, a definitive tone to it that says you can define quite easily what a righteous or a blessed person is is because they will not do these things. They won't walk in the counsel 
of the wicked. And this is an easy uh, thing for us to do because we're often assaulted by the counsel of the wicked. This is just nothing more than the ideas of man that say we do not need God. You, you can be self-sufficient yourself. You, you don't need to pray. You don't need God in your life. You can do this in your own strength. The counsel of the wicked is to say you don't need the counsel of God. And it's interesting that it starts off by the walking, right? So sometimes you're walking in the right way and you just hear these little voices of, ah, why don't you just come over here a bit and sit down here? Why don't you just stop doing that? You know, you need to look after yourself. You, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do. And it can be easy for these little things as we're trying to walk in the things of God to be distracted and to be pulled away from it. And then it progresses into the, to standing. Stand in the way of sinners. Which is those who not only are just saying, like, perhaps you don't need God, or perhaps you need to look after yourself, and perhaps all this. Now it's saying that actually it's a little bit more opposing to God and say, actually, he doesn't, he doesn't even exist. You're, you don't even need to worry about walking towards God. You you. You can actually now just forget the things of God. Just, just forget them. Don't, don't recall them to mind. Just stand over here and don't walk towards him. Just forget it's there. Forget that there's Sunday. Forget there's a prayer meeting. Forget that there's small groups. Forget that there's people there that you can actually speak to when you're in, in trouble. For, forget it. Just forget it. All you need to do is look after you. And then you start to stand because you're starting to resist or forget the things of God. And you're not going towards him. And then it progresses to something that's far worse than that. Then it progresses to seating with scoffers, mockers, People who are hostile, actively hostile against the things of God. Not just saying, forget it, but now they're saying, I'm not even going to look. Look, I, I am so certain of what I'm saying, I'm not even going to stand up for this. And not only am I going to sit down about it, and not only am I going to mock and scoff at the things that, so that people say of God, I'm also going to teach others how to do it as well. And in Hebrew, to sit down was to be the one who would teach and as they sit down, the scoffers are not only just saying, I'm mocking God, I'm mocking your faith, I'm mocking the things. I'm sitting down to say, now I'm going to teach you how to do the same. And it says, Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seats of scoffers. And this is so helpful for us because when we see that kind of stuff, when we see that we can... We can easily in our hearts, we go, I don't know about you, but when that happens, my heart just goes, oh, that feels like death. <laughs> what they're speaking of just feels death. And so then, for we have this witness with ourselves in our own spirit that we know that actually we are not sitting with scoffers because our heart goes, ah, oh, no. 
And then we know we're not forgetting and resisting the things of God because we like, I delight in the things of God. I delight to be with God. I, I want to be with his people. I want to pray. I want. And then we know that we're not walking counsel because we're like, that doesn't sound quite right. That does. Those are the things that I hear. That, they're pointing me towards God. I, I like that. That seems to bring me life. And so here by starting with the, what seems like the negative, it's actually helping us shape our our where we're at right now very clearly because it helps us see where we're at. Two categories seem to come out. Righteous and wicked. Now righteous in this is, as I'm, I'm, I'm saying, is it's not a perfection. That's not that you never sin. It's not that you're a sinless being. That's not the righteousness it's talking about. And when we're looking at Scripture, the best way for us to interpret Scripture is by looking at Scripture. See, Scripture interprets Scripture. So whenever you're looking at a passage, you immediately look for other Scripture that helps you interpret this Scripture. So when it's talking about righteous people in this Scripture here, we've got to immediately say, what does the Scripture say is righteous? Now, it's not perfection. So we go to Psalm 32. It speaks this. This is what the righteous are. A righteous person does this. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And it goes on. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So righteousness are those who are or godly people, godly and righteousness, are those who are forgiven. Those who come to the Lord and are forgiven. Those are the ones who are classed as righteous. Not only are they forgiven, they are the ones that trust. Steadfast love surrounds the ones who trust in the Lord. So the righteousness is talking about in the Psalms are those who are forgiven and trust in God. Forgiven and trust in God. And then it says that the wicked is not like this at all. And it says this in Psalm 14. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So who are the wicked? The ones who have turned aside. Those who have turned away from God. Those who have rejected him. Those are the ones that the Psalms here are saying are the wicked. Wicked and righteousness seems to be the two things that the Psalms bringing out. as two categories. You can either be righteous or wicked. But you cannot be both. And the psalm here is trying to say, blessed is the one who is righteous. So before us, when we read the psalms, we need to know who is righteous. Am I forgiven? Have I come to Jesus and confessed my sins? Have I come to him and say, I need you as Lord and Savior? And then do I say, and I trust that you will lead me 
in the way that I should go. That's the blessed person. Then the psalm seems to speak of two destinies. We have the two categories, righteous and wicked. And then it seems to speak of two destinies. You're either a tree or you're chaff. Righteous or wicked, tree or chaff. Two destinies seem to be spoken of. And in these two little verses, verse 3 and 4, is such depth that it is astounding when you read it and you start to look into it. You're just like, man, that's so full of goodness. The two destinies. First one is, he is like a tree. Now, immediately we think of trees and we think something substantial. It's not a shrub. It's not a little bush. It's a tree. It's substantial. It has shade. It, 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 it grows into something that is distinguished. It's a tree. It is something substantial. But this isn't just any tree. It's not just a tree that's growing in the forest. It's not a wild tree. It's not something that you'll find on the mountainside. It's not one of those trees. Verse 3, it says, He is like a tree planted. This is a tree that has been cultivated. It is a tree that a gardener has now taken from wherever it was and has now planted it into a specific place, a place that he wanted it to be planted. Where it was before, it is no longer. Now it has been moved into a place of purpose, a place it should be, a place where it will be provided for. It's a cultivated tree. It is a tree cared for. It is a tree that is chosen. Not only is it planted, it's by streams of water. And the interesting part of that is not by a stream of water, it's not by a river, it's by streams of water, plural. There's more than one stream that is flowing past this tree. When I read that, I'm like, that's amazing. Because normally a tree will only be, be near one stream, but somehow this tree has access to multiple streams of water. It's not just provided sufficiently. It's not just getting its need of water. It's abundantly supplied with water. It has streams of water that provide for this tree. Abundance and overflow. And if one stream would happen to run dry, it's okay. It's got multiple streams. It's got more that comes. If you find your life hard in one area, it's okay. God's got multiple streams 
to supply you with. If you feel you've gone dry in this area, it's okay. He'll be bringing the water in this way now. He brings streams of water for you. As I was reflecting on what are these streams, what are these streams of water that God provides for us? And in Scripture we know that when it speaks of water, it it often links it with the Holy Spirit. It's often a a picture of, of life coming to us from God. And this is often what the Spirit of God is, is all about. It is the Spirit of God is about bringing what was dead alive so that it may now know the one who has made it alive. And so the Spirit has streams of water that it wants for us. Streams of grace. Grace upon grace, as Mark was speaking last week. Streams of promises of God to do us good, promises of our hope and our future, promises of his faithfulness, streams of promises, streams of mercy, when we can't quite grasp the promises, when we we feel like it's not quite happening, streams of mercy from God come. And he says, I have you. Streams of forgiveness That he says, it's okay, I will wash you clean. Streams of forgiveness that allow us to be set free. Streams of comfort when we are suffering. Streams of comfort when we need to be strengthened. Streams of communion. I love the word Communion. Communion meaning deep sharing of experience. When you commune with one another, you are sharing a deep experience with one another. When we are communing with God, we are sharing a deep experience with God. Streams of communion with God and his people. He is a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Another thing that's interesting about how the psalmist has written this is because this tree is by streams of water, not just one, but many, it doesn't even name the fruit that this tree produces. Because the fruit could be many. And many are the trees that are being planted by these streams. And many fruit will come off them. So the fruit isn't even named. Not only is the fruit not named, it's not saying a pear or an apple or a plum or a peach. It's not even naming the fruit. It doesn't even name the season. It just says, fruit in season. And when God cultivates a tree by the streams of water, the fruit that is produced is what he has designed and in the season that he has ordained. And it may be 
plentiful in one and less in another, but the tree just beside it, who is also by streams of water, will produce the fruit that is needed in the season that it is needed. And it is amazing that even in this, it's not even naming the fruit. Sometimes I was looking through the different fruits that you get through the year. And I'm like, there's not much fruit in winter. Except the apples seem to grow and can produce fruit all year round. And you have certain pears that can as well and plums that are resistant to the cold. And so sometimes when someone is in a hard time of life, there can be an apple tree planted right next to them for that season. I love how it doesn't even name the fruit or the season. For us, that means be ready to be the fruit in the season that he is calling us to. And it says this, its leaf does not wither. These are evergreens. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, a comment on this verse here. He says, The Lord's trees are all evergreens. No winter's cold can destroy their lush green vegetation. And yet, unlike evergreens in our country, they are all fruit bearers. They are all fruit bearers. These trees are fruitful all year round. They are evergreens. They are consistently and producing the fruit in the season that God has for them. All the trees of the Lord are evergreens. They never lose their leaves. They are all fruit bearers. And verse 3 finishes like this. In all that he does, he prospers. Now we have to understand what it means by prosper here because if we think of prospering in our context of Western society, we think of it mainly in, turn, in terms of material possession. We will normally think of it in terms of what you get in this life. But this is not what it's trying to say. And it's not even trying to say that whatever you try to do, it'll work out well. That's not what it's saying either. Because we all know the truth. We all know that it doesn't always seem to turn well in our eyes. But the prosper that it's speaking about here is in relation to the tree that it's just spoken of. And what trees do is they produce fruit and what it is saying here is that he in all that he does he he prospers is that in all that he does the fruit that he produces will come to maturity it will come to maturity the fruit will not be something that is out of season and therefore cannot be eaten or is no good it is fruit that will come to full maturity so that it is purposeful in the time and the season that God has for it. 
To prosper means to be fruitful to maturity. Fruitful. In whatever it produces, it comes to maturity. And it goes on and says, the wicked are not so. So here we've got the second destiny, the chaff. And the interesting thing about chaff when you look at it is that that chaff is also looked after so long as it is close to the wheat. If it's still on the wheat, the chaff is carefully taken along with the wheat and carefully stored. And it is put in a safe place for the time when the wheat will be taken out. So even in this moment, there is chaff that has some privileges so long as it's in relation to the wheat still being there. But as soon as the wheat is separated from the chaff, it is cast aside, it is scattered when it is separated. The thing with chaff is, it is not like a tree. It is rootless. It has no way of keeping itself solid. Chaff is also pretty much weightless. It is easily blown by the wind. It is a stark contrast to the tree that is both rooted, cared for, fruitful, and has substantial weight. Two categories, righteous and the wicked. Two destinies, to be like trees or to be like chaff. It also emphasizes this later in verse 6 when it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This word knows means it's God saying that he will guard, he will keep. He he understands where they are and he will guard the righteous. God knows where his people are. He knows what they've been through. He knows what they need. The wicked is not so. Psalm 101, 4, it says, A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. And in Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says, when they're separating the, the goats and the sheep, he says, I do not know you. Depart from me. What words to hear from Christ. But the opposite the righteous here. The opposite, the righteous here. I know you. The wicked, they hear, I do not know you. Two destinies to be trees or chaff. But all through this, even though there seems to be these categories and destinies that are are contrasting to one another. At the same time, there is a command, an imperative, that the psalmist is trying to 
lay down for us. And it comes in verse 2 where it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. The command is this, delight, don't scoff. Delight, don't mock. Delight. The command for us as Christians is to delight in the Lord. How do we delight? I was thinking about this. How do we delight when we don't feel it? It's difficult to delight when you don't feel like you want to. And it reminded me of a story when I first came to the, to the UK. I hadn't been here long. Um, I'd been here a few months. I'd come straight from an Australian summer. So I'd come from 40 plus degrees temperature. And I came to England uh, in spring. And it was technically spring. But it felt like, like winter. And uh, I went up to London. And had, and had gone from spring apparently into summer. Because the date had changed, and who knows what date summer happens on? It's either June the 1st or June the 21st, something like that, right? It depends who you want to ask. So sometime in June, I went up to London, and I was still in a coat because it still hadn't got over 20 degrees, and I walked into Hyde Park, and looking around, and all of a sudden, the sun was out, so it was shi- the sun was shining, but it was still like 17 degrees or something like that, and I was freezing, and then I walk into Hyde Park, and I see all these green and white deck chairs all laid out in the park, and all these people in the deck chairs, most of them with their top off, just soaking up the sun, and here I am in a bomber jacket, beanie on, and thinking these people are mad. (laughs) British summer doesn't start when the weather starts. It starts when the date says it's summer. And as soon as the date says it's summer, we start acting like it is summer, and we just hope that the weather catches up with what we've already decided is summer. And that's what I've learned in the UK. I've been here, I've probably had three summers since I've been here. I've been here over a decade. And it feels like there's been three times that it's been warm enough to call it summer. But that's not the case because as soon as it comes to that date, either the 1st of June or the 21st, whichever one you want to choose, it is now summer and we're going to start acting like it. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> How do we delight when we don't feel it? Well, we start acting. We start acting first, and then we wait for the delight to catch up. And as the British say about summer starts now, no matter what, so should we be when we come to the word of God, that we should meditate on his law and delight ourselves in his law, even if we don't feel it. And we start first. The first point I want to make about how we delight when we don't feel it is this. Pray that God will give you new taste buds. Psalm 119, verse 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
If you are struggling to delight in the word, in the law of God, pray that God will change your taste buds so that when you read the word of God, it tastes sweeter than honey and delight will be just around the corner. Pray. Bathe your Bible reading in prayer. Pray before you read the Bible. Pray while you're reading the Bible. Pray the Bible into you. Pray the Bible over people. Pray after you've read the Bible. Bathe your Bible reading in prayer and God will change your taste buds so that it will become sweet as honey to you. How do I delight when I don't feel it? Number one is pray that God will change your taste buds. Number two is meditate on the word. Meditation is like the touchstone of Christianity. Does it, I, I don't know if anyone knows what a touchstone is. So a touchstone is a stone that is used to grade the quality of precious metals. And what they'd do is they'd have a touchstone when they would bring the, the metal, normally gold, and they'd have a gold that they know is of good quality, and they'd make a mark on this touchstone. And it would, it would leave a particular mark on the touchstone. And then they'd get the gold that they're saying, can you test what type of quality this gold is? And they'd put a mark next to that, and they'd compare what it leaves on the touchstone. And they could tell the impurities of one in a hundred just by doing this on a touchstone. Meditation on the Word of God is the same for a Christian. When you line up your heart against that of what is pure, of Christ, you'll see what it is like. It is the spiritual index of the Christian life. The index in the books tells us what's going to be in the book. Meditation tells what's going to be in your heart. If you meditate on the Word of God, guess what's going to be in your heart? The Word of God. If you meditate on the things of this world, guess what's going to be in your heart? The things of this world. Meditation is the index. It tells us what's going to come out. It tells us what is in the heart. Meditation is a touchstone of Christian living. Meditate on his promises. We meditate on the benefits that it is to us. His benefits to us. We meditate on the goodness of God. We meditate on God. Meditation allows God to show himself to us. If we look again and again and again, we will see something small, like Elijah's servant after Mount Carmel when the rain was going to come and Elijah says, go look for the cloud. And the servant goes up there and says, I see nothing. And Elijah says, go back and tells him to go back seven times. And as he goes back the seventh time, he says, oh, I see a little cloud. It looks like a fist on the horizon. And Elijah says, run now. The storm's coming. Meditation is like the same thing for us. As we meditate again and again and again on the Word of God, what looks like nothing to start with comes up like a little fist of a cloud that then shines out brightly that it covers all of our horizon and all we can see is the beauty 
of Christ revealed to us as we meditate on his word. And the psalmist says here that we meditate day and night. We meditate by day so that people can see our good works and give glory to God. We meditate by day to show that we love the light and not the darkness. We meditate by day because this is the day for us to work in. We meditate by night not to be seen by man and get their praise. We meditate by night as a light in the darkness to shine what Jesus is like. We meditate by night for the day of the Lord will come like a thief and we will be meditating. But you can't help but see when you meditate on Scripture, Jesus in it all. And I don't know if you've noticed when you've read this. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Now this is not the law as in the law of Moses only. It's not talking about Ten Commandments here. It's talking about the instructions of God. Better yet, it's talking about the voice of God speaking to his people. It's talking about the voice that communicates the things of God. Delight yourself in the word. Delight yourself in the word of God. And we know who the word is. Jesus is the word. It doesn't say delight yourself under the law. It says in the law. Delight yourself in the word. Delight yourself in Jesus. We are not under law, but we are in Jesus Christ. Delight in Jesus. This is what the psalm is saying. And when you start delighting in Jesus, you cannot help but worship. Delight is to have great pleasure. It's to have exceeding joy, a high degree of satisfaction. Delight can also be interpreted as rapture, to be caught up in. To delight yourself in the word is to be caught up in to the things of Christ. And when you're caught up in the things of Christ, you will not be able to stop yourself from worshipping the one who is above all. We long to be in the company of those we love. And when we delight ourselves in Jesus, we get to be in the company of the one we love, the one who loves us. We need to be a people who delight in the Lord, in the law of the Lord. We need to be ones who delight in the Bible. It is not easy to stand up here and say to you, delight yourself in the Lord. For often my own heart is not in that place. 
But as we saw, righteousness is not about those who are under the law. It is about those who are forgiven and trust in God. And then it is not about where you come in what you're doing, but now you are seated, you are placed, you are in the law, you are in Christ, and now the delight of Christ has come because when you encounter God, you will not help but praise Him. Encounter leads to worship. Delighting in Jesus will lead to worship. And as we go through these Psalms, as we go through the summer of Psalms, as we meditate, and I say with earnest to you and myself, Let us meditate on the Psalms this summer and let us encounter God and allow him to bring into our hearts a delight, a great pleasure, an exceeding joy that we would be raptured up in the delight of God, we'd be caught up in his delight and we would worship him with all that we have. We are going to take communion together. And as we take communion, meditate on what it means to take communion. Think what it does between you and God. And allow the delight of the Lord to well up in praise and worship. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up in a bit, but before they do, if you could all grab some communion, and we're going to come and we're going to have it together. And together we're going to meditate on this time as we commune with one another and with God, as we share a great and deep experience with God and one another. So there's, there's bread and juice at the back, you want to grab it, and then when you're seated, we will share communion together. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we take the bread. And Lord Jesus, we remember that your body was broken for you. And we remember this time in communion as we are having together, as we are remembering you We say thank you that your bread represents us partaking in your life. And because you live, now we also live. Thank you for the symbol of the bread. May it be all that you intended it to be for us. And as we eat of this, May we remember your body broken for us. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup 
is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this cup that represents your shed blood for us. We remember that you poured out your life so that we may be partakers in your resurrection. We thank you that there is no more separation between us and God because Jesus Christ has paid the price and has washed us clean so that now we may enter the throne room of God enclosed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we say thank you. May this juice represent all that you intended it to be. In Jesus' name, amen. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Lord Jesus, we pray as we think upon these things, as we remember what you have done for us, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would change our taste buds, that your word would become sweet as honey to us. We pray that as we read your word, we would be in communication with you. Our heart would sing of your praises. We would speak out your word, would speak it into our lives, would speak it out upon others. We would meditate on it. We would allow it to sink in deep into our hearts that we may be caught up, raptured into the delight of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as we go from here, may we make the choice, at very least, to pray that you would help us to read your word more. And once we start reading it, would we pray that you'd help us to read it again and that we would pray that you would reveal your truth to our heart so that we may delight in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.